in uh, Acts chapter 6, moving right along in our series uh, in the book of Acts. And as I was reading through this, I was uh, kind of keying in on this thing of disappointment in the church. And as I was thinking about that, uh, I just branched off into the most disappointing thing about moving to Anago, Wisconsin, which is uh, watching the eldest of my family, the firstborn, the one who will be charged with taking care of his parents in, his old a- in the, their old age, the one all the glory and hope is placed upon for the future, being dragged into being a Packers fan after 33 years of hopelessly watching football and being able to unite around something like the Detroit Lions. I'm from Michigan, if you don't know. Uh, I see him just jump the bandwagon into the Packers. And so all I hear about all the time is how amazing the Packers are. And if you think about how, so I was born in 1990. The Packers grabbed Brett Favre in like 1992. So I watched 18 years of Brett Favre just demolish the Detroit Lions. I was like, okay, well, thankfully he's moving on. And then you get 18 years, 15 years of Aaron Rodgers. It has been, I was looking it up just because I was sad and in my depression here. I look up, when was the last time the Lions won the, the Northern Division uh, in, the, in the NFC? I was three years old in 1993. Is the last time that they won the division. The Packers won it 15 times, by the way, if you're curious, uh, uh, in 30 years. Good for y'all. Oh, disappointment is everywhere, right? as a Lions fan, but especially now for Packers fans. (laughs) How the tides have turned, have they not? The hope for the Lions, climbing the mountaintop of victories, watching the Packers slide the slippery slope of who is Jordan Love. One fun stat I will say for you Packers fan, that not only is Jordan Love almost leading the lead in missing receptions, He's missing them by the most of any quarterback. He's missing his receivers. How disappointing for the Green Bay Packers fans. The the drips of hope like honey from the beehive is watching the joy sink from my son's face every Sunday, but two Sundays, telling him, oh, the Packers got demolished again. That is the face of disappointment and the joy after 30 years of suffering. Good old dad gets to pull that from my little bandwagon rider. I think we'll see probably greater disappointment, or I hope greater disappointment, in our text today, and all the jokes, even though it's true, this disappointment that we can experience as Christians and what has happens here in uh, verses 1 through 7 in our passage today. But I think the Spirit calls us to put our mind upon Christ and the Lord in ways that uh, even from disappointment we could then serve others, right? That he calls us on to greater things even in the midst of disappointment. And I think that what we'll see here is that disappointment especially in the church, can lead to healthy changes. So let's read our text today. Like I said, Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will uh, devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Paramenus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for bringing us this morning, gathering us together so that we may worship and glorify you in song and through the preaching of the word and uh, Holy Spirit, I'd ask that you would uh, move in us as we uh, go through this, that you would protect my words, that uh, you would protect our hearts, that you would teach us and encourage us and keep us again for the next week. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for your work uh, once on the cross and then now forevermore as our uh, intercessor at the right hand of the Father. We thank you for your love that you've poured out on us, and uh, we'd again ask you to help us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. And so for some of the context, as we continue this series, and if you've noticed, we're just going straight through this book. This great historian, Luke, has led us through many historical events for how the church has grown. We've seen, uh, at first, the ascension of Jesus into the sky. We then see Matthias chosen to round out the 12 apostles. We see the many uh, miracles that the apostles perform to give evidence to the gospel that they are preaching. We witnessed the deaths recently of Ananias and his wife Sapphira as a result of the hypocrisy. We even see the shadow of Peter passing by people and healing them just through the power of the Spirit. Through all that, this passionate thread of preaching of the gospel is weaved, and as a result, the church explodes in growth in such a way that uh, has never been seen before and has rarely been seen since. And that brings us to today's passage. That's the background of our text is this massive growth of the church in a way that brings the number of the people in the body to an uncountable measure. Earlier, we'd seen a few hundred and then 3,000 and 5,000 and 8,000. Now they can't even keep track because of how large the church in Jerusalem is. It's being, becoming difficult for the apostles to continue the ministry that they have been doing. Because if you recall back to chapter 4, verse 43, we read that there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was then distributed as any had any need. And whether that was every day or at the beginning of the week, there's some discussion about that. But what they were doing was collecting these things and then redistributing the goods so that everyone was cared for. And as we read, the, it's the problem that is being stirred is the care for the widows. So maybe we should understand what the Lord requirement for this is. Paul discusses that. It's an interesting thing that God decides to be extra clear, just as clear as he is with elders and deacons in First Timothy. He shows us what 
uh, he means by a widow and how they should be cared for. That's in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 14. He starts off with saying, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, and younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. Who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has, sent, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse, uh, worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been a wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to remarry, and so incur uh, condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from about house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander." I don't know why God wanted to be very precise as he's discussing about widows, but he was. I don't think he left much wiggle room for what he expects from those, uh, as he said in verse 9, are, are 60 years old who have lost their husband and are now are uh, supposed, uh, we could gain from this text, expected to use their life for the ministry of the, of the body. But this is how the deacons would categorize, these seven that are set up here, would categorize who they are to serve and which wed widows of their generation uh, and to serve, and then how they would have understood that and what we should do now in the 21st century, which I think adds weight to this situation. These aren't widows who are living comfortably with their families, who are living in multi-generational households. These are the ones who are most at risk destitute without the church in a time and a culture then especially who had absolutely no desire for them because what they should be doing is bearing children and bringing honor to households and, and giving to the family in that way. But what happens when that time of the woman is gone? They're no longer able to bear children. And now what the culture would say is they're just taking up space. It's the opposite of what the church is called to do. We're to sacrifice and love our widows to make sure that those uh, that the society would easily cast out and have nothing to do with because there's no return, that those are the first on our minds for protection. All right, that's background into why the, the widow complaint is coming. So Luke writes that this complaint arose from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of foods and the goods to make sure that they could survive throughout the week. This could have been a result of a few things. One commentator uh, went as far, which I think I disagree with, that, well, this is almost racism. These were the Hellenist Jews. They're outside of the group, so we actually don't have to care for them. I think that'd be difficult to take from 
this passage. It could have simply been because the church in Jerusalem had been, become members of 10,000 or more people that it was simply difficult to manage, that these widows were falling through the cracks and being forgotten in that daily distribution of food. The difference here is between the Hellenist widows and the Hebrew widows. What does the Hellenist mean? If you remember back in the Ezra and Nehemiah sermon series we did last year, uh, the Babylonians and the Assyrians came through Judah and Israel, took away the Jews into their lands uh, where they spoke Aramaic. And over their time there, as the generations passed, more uh, Jews and Hebrews pick up this Aramaic language. Then they come back, resettle the land, a portion of them, and settle in speaking Aramaic. Though not 100% of them did this, they stayed in the lands while the Greek uh, people came through, took everyone over, and spoke uh, a Hellenized language, the Greek language, which all of the New Testament would then have been written in. So what is happening is this group of Jews who moved home, probably to retire and to be buried in their homeland, uh, the Hellenists, move home and are now being uh, uncared for in their old age. And that's where that distinction arises. And I think that for whatever the reason, these Hellenist widows are being neglected and they begin to complain about it. And I think there are a few things that we could take away from this. First, no church is perfect, nor is its leadership. It doesn't matter where you are in your Christian life. If you have been a part of a church or this church for a long time, or you're brand spanking new and you're just coming in, you're going to see the flaws. And actually, the longer you're here, the more flaws you're going to see because they're just everywhere. Because everyone is sinful and imperfect doesn't matter if you're moving on to a new church or you're just here and all the uh, honeymoon uh, season is in effect for you and it's sunshine and rainbows and it's like people throwing glitter and you're just happy to be here. You'll just soon find the disappointment in that place or this place if you're new. Think about this. We spent five chapters witnessing once again miraculous power of the apostles through the Spirit. Like I said, Peter's shadow alone is healing people. You don't think that's amazing. These are the apostles, the church leaders of church leaders, where thousands of people are coming to faith. It's like if Springbrook today had 120 people and then next month had 10,000, you'd go, those are the greatest pastors in the world. Apparently that's not happening, right? We're not apostles. Even the apostles had a complaint brought up to them. Even the most miraculous Holy Spirit-filled people, shadow-healing people, men, failed and were imperfect. They were imperfect in forgetting the widows of the Greek speakers. And it must have been a good complaint because the apostles didn't say, pump the brakes. We missed it one time. We'll make sure they have their food. My bad. We'll get there. Don't worry. But their response was, you're right. They're being neglected. They weren't forgotten once. They're being neglected. It had to have happened for some time for this official complaint to rise to the top. Church leaders are imperfect. There will be missteps. There will be swings and misses. And if the apostles can err, so can those who lead today, if not more so. 
Another note to be made from these short uh, seven verses is the way Jesus has called us to be inclusive. And I, of course, I don't mean that in the way that the world is using it today. I wouldn't use this term to mean include everyone regardless of the choices they are making and choosing with no thought to their lifestyle. They should just be accepted into your life no matter what and do whatever they want to do. I'm not using it in that way. But I think the beauty of the church is that there's diversity. We see this as the, the Hellenists being brought in and included and then uh, an office being created to care for them. We see this in John 3.16 in the life of Jesus when instead of calling people only through the, the old covenant Jewish faith, having to follow these rules, it is then the, world, uh, the word cosmos that the, John the apostle uses there is to mean from the entire globe people are now being saved. That God so loved the entire world that he sent his son to save this. This is not just a uh, one uh, faith religion. Now it is from all of the world, not just the Jews, that we are to be saved through Christ. We're told in 1 Timothy and Titus that the old and the young should encourage one another and help each other grow and worship with one another. We see in Galatians 3, 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, nor uh, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And we see here, the apostles have a desire that the Greek-speaking Jews would not be left out of the daily distribution simply because they're not part of the in crowd, the Aramaic speakers. The church should be spiritually, culturally, generationally a diverse body of Christ. And the way that we typically try to phrase it is the church should reflect where it worships. Right? If, if, if this church was only white-collar employees in Anago, we'd probably have to scratch our heads and wondering what we're doing wrong to only draw from one narrow piece of the city. We should reflect where we live. And we see this reaction from the apostles. They didn't say, no, 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 we don't need any Greeks in here, Greek speakers. They point to the Greeks and have them make and choose the deacons. Thirdly, from this section, we see the creation of the office of the deacons. So you've heard me say that a couple times now. But they create the deacons as a result of the disappointment and failure of the leadership. Even in that ministry of the spiritually gifted apostles, there were gaps and holes. And through the deficiencies, the Lord brought the office of the deacons. And it appears that the Lord used that disappointment to lead to healthy growth in the church. John Calvin noted that if the apostles would have spoken about electing the deacons before any necessity demanded it, they would have found the people less disposed to it. They themselves would have been given the appearance of avoiding irksome labor. Many would not have been so generous in handing the gifts over to these men if it was just their idea without any complaint in the way the Lord in his sovereignty used that. Because remember, through the story of Acts, the church wasn't exploding in growth because of the ways the apostles fed people. The church was growing because of the way that they preached the gospel to lost people in miraculous and powerful ways. This is why they needed help regarding the physical serving of the people so they could reserve their ability to preach and minister the word and to pray. So that's where I want to drive home the point today, is that this is the passage where we witness the founding and that inception of the office of the deacon. 
The heart of the reason these official servants of the church was created was that the needs of the church are spiritual and physical. And because of the size of that church, the physical was being missed. The office of the deacons is a group of qualified individuals set aside by the elders to serve the church physically. They set their eyes upon the members of the body to make sure that no one goes without, without that everyone is cared for, no one lacks physically. And this is contrary to the council of elders whose eyes are placed upon the spiritual hearts of the people. That would be through, and the way it happens is through the teaching and discipleship ministries of the church. And the story uh, an older pastor would tell me is a book on, uh, on deacons was written, and in, from that book, an older pastor told a story of uh, when he was raised with his mom, who was a single mom, and they were uh, struggling. The money was short. Uh, one day, the deacons of the church knocked on the door, and in walked a number of people, bag, uh, arms full of groceries and other essentials for their family. And he became powerfully motivated and passionate about the office of deacon because they were the superheroes. They were the superheroes. They fed the family in their time of need. And I think that is the beauty of the office of deacons. They're the superheroes who come in the time of need, in the tangible need when the families are the lowest. And one might try and say that these people here are not elected as deacons per se, However, Paul writes about deacons in the same respect we see here. He writes in Philippians 1.1, where he writes uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, the elders, and deacons. And he also writes to Timothy regarding the qualifications of the office of deacon, showing the official status of the New Testament church. He writes this in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond or sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And from this passage, we, we get some insight into that role, into the point of their office. It's written that they must not be fond of sordid gain. Other interpretations like the ESV use not for greedy gain. They must be able to think uh, in a godly way about handling money. They're not to be controlled as lovers of money suggests that they, should, that they may be interacting with uh, the church's finances, maybe in benevolent uh, ways. It's written in our Timothy passage that uh, they may be managing, they must manage their households well. They sh should be good managers of their children, where the home is the training of the church leader. And if the requirement for being an effective leader is placed upon this office, it would suggest that deacons would have some physical or administrative responsibility in that local church especially if we understand from Acts 6 that this office was created to give the freedom to the ministry of the word and prayer, which has been handed, uh, handled, uh, handed to the elders. Our, our passage in Acts today suggests that some administrative re, uh, responsibilities exist because they'd be managing the widows and having to know and record who that is. And it suggests that they would be in homes meeting with people as well. 
The deacons are an official office of the New Testament church, founded right here in Acts chapter 6. They're the members of the church, as one commentator writes, and the ones the church sends into the cracks so that no one is falling through. It's the grace of God that he created the office of deacons. We know that God sent Jesus to redeem his people from their spiritual grave, and that alone was a grace earned by no one. Yet he didn't stop there, and he could have. He allowed a situation to arise here in the early church where a rise of a new office could be created, and especially ones gifted at loving and serving one another in times of need. This is especially a reflection of our Jesus. God did the same with him. There's no greater need than a dead soul uh, receiving a reviving life. He sent his own son to accomplish this goal. I don't want the person or the character of Christ to be missed in this text. The reason that any of this is possible is that Jesus did it first. And then he gifted the deacons. That they could be this tangible smile. They could be the loving heart of Christ by just a text or a phone call. And I think that's a wonderful gift to the church. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for, uh, again, for this time that you would set our hearts upon this passage, that we could consider what you've done uh, historically through the church and uh, where uh, in office that would uh, go hand-to-hand with the elders uh, to make sure that things are, cracks are being plugged, that no one would fall through, there would be no one who would be in need What a great God you are. You could have just uh, died, saved our souls, and moved on and accomplished that, and yet you just never stop loving us and giving us ways to love one another and to encourage one another, and especially now that uh, through this text, the creation of the deacons, the evidence of this comfort that would come from uh, two different uh, speaking languages in a church that You would show us the heart of yourself and how we should love one another, and I thank you for that. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this is the.